and welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Here is where we will guide you through something to do with critical appraisal to excellent questions born from the paediatric wards or clinics and take you onwards to learn all about how to put evidence into action. Evidence-based medicine is that shorthand for what we do when we try our hardest to make sure that our clinical decisions are guided by the best possible research that's out there. The way that it works is that we ask a structured clinical question, we go away, we look in the literature to see what the best evidence is to answer that. When we've got a sort of a short list of things that might answer that question, we go through those appraising them. And that means looking for the strengths and the weaknesses in each of those studies. And then we synthesize that information together in order to come up with an overall sort of opinion as to what the right answer is. The right for now, the rightest that it can be, given the state of knowledge that we have. And then we need to do something about that. And it might be that we need to change our behaviour and alter what we do. It might be that we have our behaviour confirmed and what our plan was is the right thing to do and we can crack on with it. We'll start by thinking a little bit about mm, techniques that are coming along and things that we might be interested in doing as time goes on. I've been struck recently by a wave of repurposing washing about and the challenges which emerge from thinking through the problems and the promise of the new old method. Where the idea of repurposing, and that is usually taking an older drug for a different indication and using it uh, in a new situation, often in children from adults before, is that we gain the wealth of experience with these drugs that have been used in the other condition and often with adults. And often these drugs are an awful lot cheaper because they've been around for a bit. Now, how do we use this old safety data? So the key things that I think we should be asking in this situation are how might the old population differ from this new one that we're going to be using in ways that would affect how the drug adverse events appear and how much can we trust the data from reports that are 10, 5, 15, 20 years old. Now, these are not new concepts to you lot that are into evidence-based medicine. That latter one asks you to consider with your, your current clinical expertise and knowledge what the methodologies were in the past and what biases we can now see in them. We are learning more and more about the inadequacy of published trial reports for telling us about adverse events uh, and not just cases of, of sort of active suppression and, uh, and trying to avoid telling us the truth, but partly the fact that if you've been doing a clinical trial over 10 years and you're now asked to squeeze it into 3,000 words, plus the odd extra that goes on the website that nobody ever really looks at, there's an awful lot of stuff has to be left out to pack it in. And that first question, how might the old population differ from the new one? Well, that asks you not to consider just what is the difference because it's fairly easy to see differences, but which of those differences might actually matter? So, for example, it might be that the data for a diabetic therapy drug comes from uh, 50, 60-year-old people with serious cardiovascular risk factors, and that's why they're using it. And you're considering repurposing this drug in the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia in children. Now, now the age itself probably won't be an issue, the number of years you've got on the clock. But 
it might be that the other comorbidities affect how the adverse events emerge and the way that those adverse events have severity. So, for example, it may be that we're not really that worried about cardiovascular events, which would be a big thing in that middle-aged or later population, but wouldn't be in the five-year-olds. But we might well be concerned about hypoglycemia in the developing brain in a way that we were less concerned about it in a 60 or 70-year-old. Now, in children's health, we already know that relying purely on large, direct, randomised trials is pretty pointless if that's the only thing we're going to use as evidence in order to practice. We are often left in the wash of adult evidence, and we have developed those skills of appreciating the indirect and taking the benefits and the strengths of that data and understanding it in the setting of children. Now, all we need to do with repurposing really is to repurpose our thinking and focus those same skills, but instead think about how do we use the data from older drugs. Now, our clinical questions this month come in two really quite different strands. The first of them is about phosphomycin and its use in the treatment of gram-negative urinary tract infections in children. Now, this comes from Rachel Purcell, Nelson Wang and Amanda Gui, who are all come from the Infectious Diseases Unit at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne in Australia. Their scenario is a five-year-old previously well girl referred because of an ESBL, an extended spectrum beta-lactamase E. coli infection. And that's been taken by the general practitioner and the, the sensitivities of that bug that grew in her wee were amicacin and phosphomycin. The child's pretty well, um, and you're wondering, do we really need to admit this kid for the use of IV amicacin when the oral drug phosphomycin, which I'm sort of guessing 97% of the population listening to this won't have heard of, would be useful to avoid that. Now, phosphomycin is an older drug that's been used quite a bit in the past, but then fallen out of favour as time has gone on. The structured clinical question that the, the team came up with is, in a child with a UTI due to a gram-negative bacteremia, that's the patient part, is oral phosphomycin, the intervention, and then the outcomes, safe and effective, pretty sensible, and is there any dosing information? And those are the two outcomes that are being inquired. Often with a structured question, you'll get a comparator in there as well. So, for example, phosphomycin versus amicacin, phosphomycin versus something else amicin. I don't no, I'm not a microbiologist. What the team did is they went out and they searched Medline, PubMed, Cochrane, tried to draw together all of the data that they could, limiting it to when these drugs had been used in children, so under the age of 18 or so, and then reporting on how it was used in the setting of UTIs. In total, there were 203 potential manuscripts, eight of them were relevant, and then gone through to try and pull things out. Of these different studies, they're all relatively small. The largest of them is a study with 135 patients that compared phosphomycin against intramuscular nettlemycin, uh, and that was an RCT looking at the two of those different drugs, the oral versus the IV version. And they showed that it was a pretty effective treatment with 80% cure um, with the phosphomycin and actually not really any different than the nettlemycin. 
The others were similar sort of relatively small 60 or so down to 5 or 10 at the smallest level, all drawing information on, on how this could be used and what things were drawn out. Was it effective and what were the side effects? Now, what we know is that these drugs have been used in the past and theoretically they work in practice, but we're unclear on exactly what the sorts of doses are because back when these things were being used, drugs were, were fairly frequently used because we were just not guessing, but making an educated estimate of what should be done rather than undergoing extensive paediatric investigation protocols to get there. All of these studies were old, 20 years or so beyond, and they all showed reasonably positive outcomes. The successful outcomes were not just getting rid of it first time round, but also did it stay away? Was there a problem with recurrence um, with fosfomycin versus the other ones that we used? And, and no, about the same levels of recurrence in both. The most frequently rated adverse effects in here were diarrhea, not that uncommon with any sort of antibiotic and others were really rare and not really very significant and that fits with the problems that adults have experienced. The data on dosing was a little bit more sort of wide and varied, some using a gram in those under one and two grams for over one, some using 100 to 200 mg per kilo per day, split in three or four different doses. Now, why are these so different? Well, partly practicalities, partly just what people do generally, partly perhaps driven by the sort of in vitro studies that look to see how do you need to, to have things differently to kill different sorts of bugs? But to be honest, there ain't many of us that think, I wonder what the exact kill pattern of an antibiotic needs to be for this gram-negative versus that gram-negative. Most of us just look up, how do you give this drug? And it tends to be given in one particular way. When you put things together, then it probably for medium-sized children, that sort of 5 to 12 age range, 2 gram is a, is a reasonable dose to give. It seems a very, very broad and uncertain, but it's probably right for older children. And then for the, the younger children, the infants of, of sort of 1 to 12 months, a single dose of 1 gram being the right thing. All of this adds together to say, in this situation where we've got multi-drug resistant bacteria and we're looking for ways of not trying to expand the problems by using much broader spectrum antibiotics and excess hospitalization, phosphomycin might be a perfectly reasonable choice. Now our other question leaps to the top end of the body and instead asks, is nasal balloon autoinflation an effective treatment for children with glue ear? This is from Kieran Joshi at the School of Clinical Medicine in the University of Cambridge in the UK. Now, what have we got with nasal balloon autoinflation? Well, we all know about glue ear, bilateral otitis media with effusion. It makes your hearing go a bit fuzzy. Great excuse for not hearing your parents. Extremely good excuse after an operation for having lots and lots of ice cream for at least two or three weeks. And one of the greatest parts of my childhood. 
Cases of, of persistent OME can absolutely be managed surgically with ice cream and grommets, but there is an idea that you should probably wait some time because many of these kids that have OME will just get better on their own. Now, there has been a device suggested of nasal balloon autoinflation that actually sort of pushes the pressure back through, a bit like, you know, closing your nose and swallowing when you're going up and down in an aeroplane. For those of you who have uh, only just recently entered adulthood, aeroplanes were things that we used to use an awful lot before the pandemic to fly between different countries when we used to believe that you had to be physically with people to meet them rather than over Zoom, Teams, Gmeet or any of the other video conferencing options. What the author did was go away asking the question, in children with OME, that's the patient group, does nasal balloon autoinflation, the intervention, improve symptoms or hearing outcomes? Again, not saying is it better than surgery, is it better than something else, but just is it worth having a go? It, it, it's not something that has particularly big problems with it went away, searched in the medical databases, came up with 24 different articles, nine of them selected to go in here. And unlike the other, this was a series of RCTs. And they were moderately sized, 320 children randomised between just standard versus this auto-inflation approach, 60 children randomised between saline irrigation, 85 kids waiting versus that, uh, 100 children randomised between waiting versus that. So, so moderately sized, looking to see, did it make a difference over time? When you pull all of these together, what you see is that, that doing the nasal balloon autoinflation, it does seem to make a difference and it improves symptoms a little bit and it improves hearing a little bit. And that that doesn't cure everyone. Absolutely not. I'm thinking about the adverse effects of doing this, putting something up your nose and, and, and blowing it up. Then only one showed that it made things no better or worse than doing nothing or waiting. And, and the, the device used in here was quite different than the one that is most currently around in the country. So, so at the moment, there is a, a standardised Otavent device, so it's an actual medical device. The one that had the uh, nasal balloon autoinflation being, being worse was, um, well, basically, you know those wheezy things that you put in your mouth and go like a party uh, whistler thing well basically it was that the idea was that you put that in the kid's nose and you got them to do that uh, and, and and that wasn't as effective compared to a, a actual medical device and maybe that's what was part of it surprisingly high rates of adherence to the treatment being given in these trials um, and it might be that actually the people that went into these trials were already very motivated to do so but it's a relatively low cost low problem way of taking something forward during a period of observation that might reduce the need for surgery in a number of kids. In the current setting where there are many sort of delays and backlogs uh, in operations across the world, it could be even more important to use this sort of approach in order to either temporise or actually help sort out this situation without needing to go onwards. 
So there's our cases, repurposing devices from adults or drugs from the past, bringing them forwards in time and using them to try and solve the problems of today. What we'd love to hear about are clinical problems that you have gone away and you've tried to answer using the best evidence possible. Please follow the instructions on the website to submit your Archimedes to us and we will be delighted to try to supportively work your way through. Not every submission gets accepted. That's the case with everything that works in the world of academia. But please do have a crack and we hope that even just trying will be something valuable for you, at least for your portfolio, if not for the start of your academic career or solidly in it, as with some of the authors from today. We look forward to speaking to you in the next month and have a lovely time. <laughs>